Welcome back, Hospitality MD listeners. Today, I sit down with Shelly Brown, who believes mindfulness is not what we've all been led to believe. Rather than a focus on what's often seen as weird and uncomfortable approaches, she knows it's a practice of rock stars and warriors. A practice that transcends calm. A practice that trains our brains to embrace and extend time in the present. A practice that is the foundation of self-awareness. Shelly spent over two decades in the hospitality industry and today remains connected by inviting us to explore a practice that trains our brains to sustain remarkable presence, well-being, compassion, and resilience. The result? We can practice mindful leadership to show up better for our teams, clients, organizations, and even humanity. Enjoy the interview. Leadership roles or management roles who maybe got promoted and have no clue how to engage people and and yet they're put in these roles where they're responsible and there's just shitty cultures, you know. I've I had so many job changes. I think in, in like, industry. That's part of the problem specifically is people who are getting promoted for the wrong reasons, individual contributors who have no idea how to speak with people, how to manage them, how to motivate or lead somebody else. And then it's like the blind leading the blind at that point. Um, And I think that, uh, that contributes a lot to it. And also one thing, and I think this is why you and I like, I think have connected so much because I really, really love your message and what you're doing. Um, and recently at Hospitality MD, we've been talking about it more is the the corporate culture that can be toxic that exists in hotels in the hospitality industry. Yeah, And like, yeah. it sounds like you are, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong based on what you do, but you're literally going out there every day and trying to break that down and fight that on a daily basis and make people feel better even if they're in that situation exactly so it's it's twofold and we can talk about this on the podcast if you want me to hold my thought or i can tell you right now i'm already recording so okay we're just talking so naturally (laughs) i just figured i'd record everybody is responsible for their own well-being and we all bring something to the party right so i could be having this miserable life And I go to work and I bring that with me. So the stress, the distraction, the disconnection, I bring that to work. And there's such thing as an emotional contagion. And then there's people who just have stress. We all have stress and we have varying degrees of stress. And so when you bring that into a work environment, you couple that with an environment that is not helpful in helping you feel emotional safety, a sense of belonging, a sense of that you're valued, a sense that your gifts and talents are recognized, that increases that anxiety. So it's really twofold. So it's everybody is responsible for their own well-being. However, people in roles where people report into them are very responsible for creating of feeling of safety, a feeling of engagement, that your talents are valued beyond your performance metrics. And I think the 
biggest area of suffering for a lot of people in this is in work in general, not just our in, industry, is that so much of our value is about how we're performing and not who we really are. So people that really can recognize us as human beings and what that human being contributes to every day in being better together creates safety, creates engagement, creates a sense of this sort of family and belonging at work. What would you say to, because I think like there are a lot of people who, who maybe in theory would agree with what you're saying, but there's a lot of people who would say, this is a business. We, you know, we had to leave our emotions out of this or, um, Oh, what was the last thing you heard me say? You're all kind of, Mm, okay. You froze. Gotcha. Hold on one second. Okay. Okay. All right. So I think this might be a little of those technical difficulties coming back. <laughs> Do you mind waiting like one second? I'm actually no. gonna I'm gonna all rejoin good. the session. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate it's all good. it. Thanks. Yeah. To create profits, we are in business to have, you know to create revenues for our stakeholders, for our businesses, for our organizations. And obviously having a culture where we feel like we're emotionally safe, where we feel like we contribute, where we feel engaged, where we feel like we're playing for the home team, where we're not in fear, where I come from the world of, you know, that fear-based management. I've been around in the hospitality industry for a long time where a GM would walk in and you'd start shaking, you know, you couldn't be like, right. oh, hey, you know, <laughs> you'd be, you, you just, you, you would be scared. And so that kind of leadership doesn't help people feel that that safety that belonging that engagement that team mentality that we have one vision and when you can create that type of environment people do better people care they feel like they have a purpose at work yeah and and i think like one thing and this is speaking from experience myself um when you have like an anxiety inducing work environment, um, you tend to spend more of your time worrying and trying to navigate those murky waters rather than actually accomplishing something and being productive. And like that anxiety is debilitating when it, when it's coming from inside your workplace. Um, I think, was it I was it um, Miranda Beating's post on LinkedIn um, where she said like she was getting like uh, anxious episodes whenever somebody would like send her an email or her boss would come and talk to her like that is so real for so many uh, people in the workforce and I think specifically in hospitality as well um, th- that I think there's a real need for for this to be addressed because there are so many hotels that are letting the guests suffer because of management that is whether it's outdated or ineffective or whatever the case might be but ultimately the team and the guests are suffering because of it 
for sure. And you hit the nail on the head. Anxiety is debilitating. When you're in that flight or flight mode, you really aren't processing through the part of your brain that has the ability to like disperse information in, in the right way. You're, you're processing information through the amygdala. So you're like in fear all the time and you can't talk yourself out of that. And if you're in that for a sustained period of time, like Miranda was talking about coming to work every day and, and you're afraid, it's not something that you can decide in the morning, hey, I'm not going to be afraid. It is actually this sort of embedded central nervous system response. And not only do you suffer, but the people around you suffer and the guests are suffering too. And it isn't just, you know, managers, it's human beings. A lot of us are put into this sort of stress response mode, not only because of our work lives, but because of life in general. Life is getting busier and busier and busier, you know, with all the distractions that are pulling for our attention. There's been a study that shows that our attention span is nine seconds long, which is the same as goldfish. <laughs> so really? I, know, right? I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> yep. And behaviors, uh, a lot of behaviors that we're displaying now would have been considered ADHD years ago. And hmm. here's one for you, Kyle. People born after 94, there has never been a bigger incidence of anxiety and depression in a population since 1994. There's been more anxiety and depression. And I think it comes from just this whole sort of cycle of, of stress and distraction. I 100% agree with what you're saying as somebody born after 94 myself, just to see like, and especially with, with social media, you can, you can see, I think social media in 2020 is like, people are just feeling more free to just really just share what they're actually feeling at this point. Um, and what you're seeing is a lot of depressed people, like on a widespread scale, a lot of anxious people. Um, and it's actually become like a staple of just like jokes in like the young society of, of America and of the world at this point, which is certainly unfortunate. Um, however, I think it's good that it's at least being acknowledged and talked about to a certain extent, even if it's primarily only being talked about among the group of people who are most heavily affected by it. Um, and so when it comes to employers, companies, managers, bosses, all that good stuff, what do you think their uh, obligation is um, when they bring a new person onto the team and they're building that culture? So, the other thing that I wanted to bring up before I answer that, and thank you, um, not only are we more distracted in general, but everything is measurable now, right? Everything is metrics, and there's never been there's never been anything like we see now, where where guests have the opportunity to put remarks instantaneously about our performance. So technology, this is still at the speed of light. We don't see that stopping. People are more distracted and the expectations of customers are changing all the time. 
the ability for them, again, to remark on social media about how we're doing. So there's a lot of pressure on on the whole ecosystem, on the whole uh, hospitality ecosystem. So when somebody new comes in to our industry, they're usually like why we came in. We love people, right? People don't go to the hospitality industry because they want to be in a tiny little cube sitting by themselves. They go into the industry because they really love people. But the thing that would make the most difference in terms of my viewpoint is when we practice that hospitality internally. So it's hospitality inside out, for lack of a better word. And I'm sure it's been said before, but when we have the ability to show up at our best, and what I mean by that from a leadership my uh, manager point of view is, a leader or a manager who practices presence, who's right here, right now. There is nothing that makes somebody feel more valued than to give your presence. And by the way, I, I retired paying attention and now I'm saying intentionally giving attention. Because when we are present, If I'm meeting with you and I'm on the computer typing or I'm looking at my phone or I'm answering another phone or even my internal distractions, if I'm speaking with you, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch or the next meeting I had or the meeting that I just had, I am not giving you my full presence. So I think that is a huge, huge part of what a good manager or leader does. The other thing is recognizing people's gifts and talents. Sometimes people go into uh, an occupation that may not be the best use of their gifts and talents. So if you actually see what this person's gifts and talents are, how can you, how can you expand on those? Maybe in the position that they're in, maybe not at the position that they're in. And I also think creating a mindful vision, helping people understand what is it that the human you gets to create at work. So beyond the paycheck, what do you get to bring to your work? And then I think mindful communication, which is which is really, really, really mindful listening. There's so many things. Sorry, Kyle, go ahead. No, that's okay. I just really, really liked the um, the the dual idea of like intentionally giving, uh, you know, somebody your, your attention. And then therefore by being able to observe, listen, uh, get to know them, um, and actually reflecting on that by giving them their, your presence and attention, then you therefore get the opportunity to extract the best out of them. And generally I think people are better at like their performance is better when they actually enjoy what they're doing. And I don't feel like that gets talked about enough um, because when somebody gets started in a job, chances are they're probably doing a lot of different responsibilities encompassing within that position. And I'm sure some of them they're really good at, they really, really like, and the parts that they don't like so much are their weaker points. It's just natural. I think being able to really, be creative as a manager as well as is huge given all that information. I agree with you. I agree for sure. I think the other thing is, you know, really, really helping people identify their own values, 
not just the company values, but deciding for yourself, what are your values? And then aligning everything to those values, maybe even telling somebody, these are my values. These are my code of conduct. This is how I'm going to show up. So being intentional about the way you are going to show up, the way you, I was concierge for many, many years. And my favorite thing, and this is obviously something that a lot of us share in the hospitality industry is who can I bring joy to today? Yeah. You know, and I mean, isn't that what we do in the hospitality industry today? It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Who can no. I bring joy to today? Because that's that's what we're doing here. And and people forget that. And I think when people forget that part of it is when you start to see um and excuse my language, but the shit waterfall coming down with a toxic anxiety inducing corporate culture where giving somebody joy becomes secondary to scores, metrics, quotas, everything like that. Uh, now you're doing this, you're doing this now, you're going to different cities, going to different hotels, helping leaders maximize, um, you know, the potential of their teams through mindfulness. Now I want to talk about how you got here, what your experience has been like and why you felt the change to do what you're doing now. (laughs) Thanks. So Unlike a lot of people who come to mindfulness, some people come through to mindfulness through the Buddhist route. I came to it through my 19th nervous breakdown route. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had been in the industry for a really long time. And I noticed that as my responsibilities increased, because I started out in the front of the house, and then I went into sales, then I went into technology, hospitality-related technology, And as my responsibilities increased, as technology got faster and faster as it's doing now, I noticed that I got really, really stressed. And I was also part of cultures that were what I considered to be really toxic. And I really had this major stress response that I mitigated through running a lot of marathons and teaching spin classes and Monday happy hours because we're all really good at happy hour in the hospitality industry. (laughs) (laughs) And then ultimately, um, I actually had a severe injury and my vertebrae collapsed on the nerves going down my leg and I couldn't run anymore. And so not only was I like high strong, I was now all of a sudden like crazy fight or flight response when you're just in fear all the time and you can't talk yourself out of it. And I had taken some time off of work to heal, went back to the industry and I could not deal. I was stressed about everything. And again, working for another toxic culture and I was put on performance improvement plan, which is never, never fun and and Mm. never good for the ego. And it was because I was stressed and I didn't know how to say, look, this is, this is, this is something in, in me that I, that I need help with, but I, I didn't know what to do. So I was put on performance improvement plan, quit a job, got another job and then fired because I was still in this stress response. And instead of helping me, 
and and trying to understand like how the how my workplace could be of help they were basically like we just can't do this we're we're firing her so anyway came to a mindfulness through a mindfulness based stress reduction program it tr- changed my life so much because when we're under stress our wires get crossed essentially and mindfulness is sort of a reset it literally changes the brain within 8 weeks time your brain can be changed and so then you're responding in a more balanced way instead of in a fight or flight way and i it was so transformative i had to learn all i could about it and so i studied with a different a couple of different former buddhist monks and decided that i wanted to give back to this industry and put together a workshop to help people not only understand what mindfulness is but also to demystify it for people because a lot of people when you when you say the word mindfulness they're like oh woohoo let's sit with our feet legs crossed with our socks off in namaste position and that's not my way i actually use rock music to help people understand what mindfulness is and you know what you really took the words right out of, out of my mouth because the first thing i was thinking is you know i hear the word mindfulness come up all the time and it just kind of seems like this um i think you even you even mentioned it it's like a fad like uh to a certain extent what is mindfulness for those of us who don't know <laughs> Why, thank you for asking me, Kyle. So I totally was like a skeptic, especially because I was type A, ultra marathoner. I'm like, this is for tea drinking yogis. You know, what the heck is this stuff? Mindfulness, what we're doing with mindfulness is we are learning to extend, we're practicing extending time in the present. So mindfulness is paying attention specifically to what we're doing and without judgment. So we're always judging things, but when we notice these judgments, so right now we're, we're just talking to each other. That's all we're doing. Distractions, what we're trying to do with extending time in the present is to limit the distractions or the sufferings, the fear, the worry about the future, the regret, the remorse about the past, the autopilot way that we go about our life. And so we're just here. And when we're just here and we're just extending time in the present, we can really, really, really show up for the other person, show up for our life and experience just what is going on right now. When somebody is severely anxious, depressed, they feel hopeless, you know, like, and, um, you know, looking at it from the lens of like, okay, if somebody is so anxious that they can hardly get out of bed and do the dishes today, how can you take somebody who's in that position and get them to actually intentionally put energy toward mindfulness because that's it, it it sounds to me like that's a very intentional very directed and very energy consuming uh practice to to get into how can you help somebody who feels like they have nothing that they can do to get better mm-hmm. so i was one of those people 
I literally was so consumed with stress and anxiety that it felt like I had a noose around my throat. I woke up every day with an internal buzz. I went to work every day, sometimes couldn't even go to work because stress literally, literally consumed me. And a lot of times when we're that anxious and we're depressed, we don't see a way out. And many of us who do go through that stress and anxiety, we're looking for ways to get out of it, to make an end to it, to make it stop. And the thing that I can't say this is true for everybody, but when I started on my journey, when somebody told me that it wasn't all a cognitive issue, that it wasn't all about talking myself out of it and reading self-help books and going to therapy and talking and talking about it, that it literally is a response that's created within your body where your central nervous system, again, I use the expression, the wires get crossed. When this person said to me that those wires can get reset, that gave me hope realizing that it isn't all up in my head, that my wires could get reset, gave me more hope than I'd ever had in my entire life. So to those people who are laying in bed, who are anxious and who are depressed, a lot of the reason is because we think there it will never end, or we are worried and consumed with stuff that we're not even sure is going to happen in the future, or we are ruminating and looping over and over to either self-criticism, self-judgment, self-hate, regret, remorse, guilt, and all this stuff. And all of those things are just thoughts. So what mindfulness helps us do is we can just begin becoming a witness to those thoughts. And it does, meditation is one of the ways So it is the formal practice and it's a process. But when we can learn to literally watch our thoughts, then we can also see how impermanent they are. And that that thought you have that life sucks or life is shitty and it's never going to be better. When you see that, you're like, oh, that's a thought. And you can actually see it passes and realize that you're right here right now. That is where it can help. Does that make sense, Kyle? It does. And like, honestly, like what you just said means a lot to me personally, uh, as somebody myself, I've struggled with depression for a long time, like even stemming from when I was a kid and now, um, you know, into my, uh, early twenties, um, and, and, and dealing with that, I, I have seen a therapist before. And one of the things that she told me was very similar to what you described was whenever you have a negative thought, like you have like a spectrum, right? Like, and you just see like a negative thought coming across, like being able to identify it from like a disassociative point of view and be able to be like, no, that's a negative thought. I'm going to take that and put that somewhere else and, and ignore it was a huge breakthrough for me. Um, And even though like I haven't seen that therapist in several years, it's something that I continue to, to try and actively think about. Um, I literally like that. The last appointment I had with that therapist was when she told me that, and then I haven't felt a need to go back since then. That's really cool. So I, 
I think that's awesome. A lot of times what prevents us from recognizing that that thought is out there and that we don't have to buy every thought as the truth, a lot of what prevents us from being able to do that on an ongoing basis is because when we are anxious and we are depressed, we we aren't working that noticing muscle. And that's what, that's what meditation or contemplation or whatever, that's what we're doing is, is we're actually working the muscle, just like a bicep curl. We're working a muscle in our brain to keep coming back from a thought. Okay. Let's say that thought is life sucks. When I think that thought life sucks, if I don't notice I'm thinking it, then life sucks because I'm believing that's the truth, Mm -hmm. right? But if we can practice that noticing muscle, like in meditation, and that thought comes by, life sucks. The more I notice that thought and come back to the present, and in meditation, oftentimes the present is our breath, the more I practice that sort of brain bicep curl of coming back to the breath, the more I can see the impermanence of that thought and that it's just a thought, and I don't have to believe all the bullshit in my head. And it's a practice, because we all know most of the shit we think is not true, right? Well, like, just think about how many millions of miles per minute, like, the average brain can can think. Like, we have so many thoughts, we can't even comprehend them at the same speed that we're thinking them. Um, So when when something like life sucks crosses your mind, I think, yeah, like you said, like just addressing the fact that, wait a second, this is just another one of these millions of thoughts that is, you know, just spiraling through my brain at any given moment. um, And I can forget about it just like I did everything else. Because when you just let it happen, life does suck. Life really does (laughs) suck. Because your perception is reality. And yeah. to a certain extent. We, we make our thoughts a reality. And we have 60,000 thoughts a day. 80% of them depend, de- tend to be negative. How many? We have, neg- have 60,000 thoughts in our head a day. And 80% tend to have a negativity bias. That is absolutely fascinating. Why do you think we're so negative? It just in our inherently, like, it's almost like it's in our ingrained in our biology to be negative. So trying to overcome that is really a daunting task. Uh, And then aside from that, I think for anybody who, who feels like they may be alone, just knowing that for every single person who's ever existed, roughly 80% of their thoughts are negative. I think that's that, I mean, that makes me feel like we're all in the same boat and I'm sure others will feel the same as well. Well, it's, it's, I've heard that it's based on thousands of years ago for survival that, that, you know, we have to be in sort of this protective mode. And, and a lot of us, when we're in fear, when we're in, in anxiety, fear's best friend is certainty. Have you ever had a one-on-one meeting that's going to be in an hour from now and you're scanning through your brain thinking of all the bad things that are going to happen in that one-on-one meeting Uh, or worried about what that review is going to be like? And then you go and like none of that happened or you get an email from a manager, I want to see you in my office. And you're like, oh no. And we always think the worst and we go in there and it's nothing. Yeah. Time and time again. (laughs) 
but I'm not downplaying, you know, that people do feel seriously bad and feel serious anxiety and depression. I can only share my experience. And I thank you for sharing that with me. I never thought that I could intentionally wake up every day and feel joy, as much joy as I do. And and it is because of the practice of mindfulness. I spent years of my life pretending to be, you know, this happy person in our industry. And yet, stress and and anxiety and depression were consuming me. So I'm not saying that this is the only way, but I'm saying that as somebody who had tried everything else, this was something that was truly, truly transformative and continues to be transformative, not only for me as as, as an individual, but to show up better for humanity with compassion with uh, a feeling of of wanting the best and happiness for everybody else in the in truly do you think that um you know having those dark times and being able to overcome that has maybe made you more empathetic and actually you can spin that as probably maybe one of your greatest strengths to this day, maybe is stemming from the experiences that you had when you were in those dark places? That's a great question. I think being more compassionate and empathetic is accessible to every single person when they get out of the crap in their own head. Because what closes us off from each other is usually in between our ears. When we can be present again. We're letting go of all the noise between the space, between our ears. And we know that we're really, really connected to each other as human beings. So when we get rid of all that crap, whether it's stress, distraction, or self-judgment, or whatever it is, and we connect as humans, it opens up compassion. It opens up empathy. It just does. When when you were in hospitality, uh, well, I mean, you still are, but when you were working in hotels like full time, you know, as a concierge or in sales, did you find that you were you were using this mindfulness then, or did you feel like to connect with the the guests that were coming to the hotel, or do you find that this didn't really you didn't connect the dots until much later? <laughs> I didn't connect the dots until much later. I always, always loved people. And I always loved providing really good service for people, um, in, you know, in the front of the house. And then in sales, I always wanted to make my goals and close deals and stuff. And a little bit of it was self-serving, Kyle, because a little bit was, if I do that, then I'm good. It was a way to actually, you know, pat myself on the back in some ways, not only look good for my managers and leaders, but a way to like value myself. And now it's much more altruistic and it shows up much more altruistically in that really wanting to, do things for other people because it feels good to offer more so than anything about me, if that makes sense. Yes, it it does. And, and 
forgive me. I don't have any like numbers or statistics on this. Um, you know, I didn't think the conversation was going to go here, but I'd like to bring it up. Um, in the hospitality industry, I've specifically, I, you know, I've read things, I've seen um, articles, and it's sort of been starting to be talked about a little bit more that um, there there is a lot of uh, substance abuse and mental illness going on within the hospitality community, whether that's hotels, restaurants, so on and so forth. My first question in in regards to that is, number one, are you, do you, have you heard about this? Are you aware of it? Have you seen it in your experience? And number two, if so, do you think that depressed people or people who are more apt to, to you know, maybe have substance abuse problems are better fits for hospitality naturally? Or do you think it's because of spending your time in hospitality, how demanding and rigorous it can be that those people may, may come out on the other side uh, with a little bit more problems than, say, somebody in another industry? I think people in general, and I'm not you know, a mental health expert, my my focus is on on mindfulness. And I think people in general are suffering more than ever just because the disconnection, the distraction, there's a myriad of reasons. I mean, the hospitality industry, restaurant industry have always kind of been notorious in that regard, but so has the music industry. I mean, think of every rock star, you know, right? Sure. And so I think it, it, I think it's just people in general, and some of it could be the hours and some of it could be that maybe people who really have, who have the desire to provide service. I don't know, Kyle, I, this is not my area of expertise. Sure. sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for your thoughts on that. Nonetheless. Um, now I, I do want to go back even further uh, to uh, ask you the question that I ask every single guest that comes on Hospitality MD, and tell me about the first time you recall feeling hospitality. You froze. Oh, okay. Did you hear my question? No, it, no, you froze. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I wanted to know what the first time you felt hospitality was like, if you can remember. When I was a little girl, we stayed at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, and I was so mesmerized by the grandeur of this huge, huge hotel and resort in Miami, Florida, and it was so magical it was so incredibly magical to me that that I just fell in love with hotels right then and there. I don't know that I knew that I was going to begin working in the hospitality industry, but that is one of the most vivid memories I have in my life. I, I actually got chills because, like, I'm very familiar with the uh, that experience. Um, I never had it where it was like maybe one specific hotel. And if it is, I don't recall, but, um, being able to travel and like every time I would like set foot in a hotel, I would feel this just like energy that was just like, it would just 
it makes me feel alive. And I still feel that to this day, but, um, you know, as a child, it was, uh, inexplicable. I, I don't know. And, um, that's, that's really, really cool. Was there anything specific about that hotel? Anything, any details you remember that just, you know, that made you feel so connected to it? I remember vast hallways, rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms. In fact, I remember getting lost and I was a little kid and I was asking somebody to help me find my room and it was like in the complete opposite wing and it was very confusing. But I also remember swimming pools and palm trees and just so many people flittering around, staff people in uniforms, just flittering around, you know, busy and doing their thing and it's just like this magical world to me. That was my exact experience when I stayed there. I mean, it must have been about eight years old when I stayed there. My dad was going to that hotel for a business trip, and he was like, you can come with me. So I was like, yes, this is going to be great. Um, so I stayed there, and I remember just being enamored by the the bustle and the amount of like staff, like it just seemed like a very well run place. And I didn't even know what that meant at the time, nor, you know, I, I didn't know, but it just had that energy of like, everybody is contributing to a well-oiled machine. And I remember um, one of the groundskeepers um, was nice enough to take like a machete, climb a ladder to a large palm tree cut down a coconut, chop off the top oh. and give it to me and my twin brother so we can like hang out with these coke like these fresh coconuts. And then they actually let them let us take them to the pool area and, and drink them and like, you know, it was just like super cool, like a great experience. Very atypical, I think. Like to go out of your way for somebody like that, that's very hospitable. Maybe um a testament to the culture of that hotel even, you know, then and now. And what's beautiful is when you can feel that when you're working for the particular property, when you feel that magic, when you feel like you are a part of orchestrating this incredible experience and you feel like you're a family. And I felt that I felt that before I I I know you have too, where you feel empowered, where you feel like you can make the decisions that are necessary that are going to elevate that guest experience that much more. And not only because you get recognized for it, but because you can make that decision without having to ask for permission, knowing that, that everybody has that same mindful vision. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I really like until I worked at a at a hotel that made me feel that way. Like you almost don't even know that it's possible, or that that type of euphoria and and uh, and like love for your product, love for your city, love for your team members, love for your guests that you didn't even know that can exist at that level until you actually experience it. And I think leaving that and seeing the reality of most other places, it's heavy. It's heavy. And that's what happened to me this last year. You know, it was seeing that it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, the grass wasn't greener, number one. And number two, I think part of my maybe uh, Achilles heel to a certain extent is that like I desire to like want to make an impact so grand and change things and like but I also came to the determination that 
like, you know what, you can't change everything yourself. If your general managers, your owners don't want it, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You can change your own experience, but you may not be able to change change the entire culture. And what you just said makes so much sense. You know, there's certain hotels in my memory that set that benchmark for me. And you also touched on the word love. There's no reason people can say, I love pizza. I love beer. I love puppies, but they can't say, I love the people I work with or I love my job. Like there's nothing wrong with the word love and the feeling of love in the workplace. And to have that is amazing. Yeah, and and it wasn't until you just said that that I realized, like, why is that such a taboo (laughs) type of thing? Like, love is a beautiful thing. We should be able to, you know, to openly express that without any sort of judgment, um, you know, even in in a work environment, because love doesn't have to be, like, romantic or Mm -hmm. attraction-based. You know, it's just you feel fondly for somebody else. You're in endeared by what somebody else is doing. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just beautiful, you know, and I, that's when you can really be your best. I agree. hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. And there isn't any reason that we can't say it. And I think that the people who don't feel comfortable being able to say that could have a lot to do with their outside life. And it could also have a lot to do with outdated outdated management styles where you have to lead with fear and fear isn't a really good motivator at all. So I, I guess like probably in your, in your role now more so than ever, you've probably seen that on a more widespread scale. And I'm sure you've, you've witnessed a lot of cultures that, that need your help. Um, What have you found the biggest challenges to be, in, in your current role with, with helping to address the anxiety, the fear, the, you know, everything that, that we've been talking about? Mm, one of the biggest ones is, is the technology distractions. It, that's one of the biggest ones because they get in the way of people really being present for what they're doing, for the call with their client, for in sales, the call with their pro- prospect, for a leader who's meeting one off with somebody and and can't stop long enough to close off their computer or step away from their office and step away from their phone to really ha- be present. Um, I think coming to meetings with technology that's another area where where sometimes you have to bring the technology, but then sometimes you don't. And I also think that practicing mindful listening is one of the hardest things. And we're not used to listening to each other. I mean, we're doing this podcast right now and we're not interrupting each other, but how many meetings do you attend where people actually allow somebody to not only finish their sentence, give positive feedback or even affirmation for what's just been said And say, oh, yes, and I agree with what you're saying. And I also think this, you know, having this sort of aligned conversation that we have at a podcast, that doesn't happen at meetings. That doesn't happen because people are interrupting each other. People want to be heard and they don't practice the skill of listening with presence. They don't practice giving positive feedback 
to something simple as what somebody else just said. And so what happens is we're not all aligned with each other when we're not listening and we're not present. I never really thought about it through that lens before, because now that you, you know, as you were saying that I'm, you know, kind of inherently spinning in my head thinking, okay, well, what about that meeting? What is the one, when somebody said this and like, honestly, it's very uncommon for somebody to go out of their way and say, like, that was a really great contribution. Uh, I agree with you. And let me elaborate on that a little bit further in my own point of view. And like, if, if somebody were to say that to another, like if, if somebody were sitting in a meeting, I just said something and they said, wow, that was a, that was really insightful. If you don't mind, I'd like to add on to that. I'd be like, Oh, thank you so much. Please go ahead. Like, let's have a dialogue about this. And it would be so much more productive with, with positivity rather than egos. And I think that's the anxiety coming into play again, when people feel the need to be the loudest, be heard, be, you know, alpha to a certain extent all the time. It's like, maybe you feel like you have something to prove because of the way that the organization is structured. Um, or I guess for any number of reasons. For sure. I, I agree. And and I also think that we have a habit of not only interrupting each other in meetings, but in the type of environments we're at in the hospitality industry, very few of us have our own office, our own space. And so we're not always mindful of how we're in, interrupting each other you know, how we're interrupting each other, whether it's, whether it's, you know, in, in when you're sitting there behind the, in the back of the office doing something on the computer, people aren't really mindful of, of getting right in your face. You know what I mean? People sure. are not thoughtful about that kind of stuff. We want immediate answers. We practice impatience a lot more than we practice patience. And technology just makes that so much more true. Um, I mean, there have been places that I've been at where I'll be off, but I'm expected to be responding to emails all day long and essentially working from home and uh, all because I can get the Outlook app on my phone you know, for that reason only, it's like you're working that much harder or always, um, you know, always feel like you're on call because those emails are always coming through. Um, or somebody can call you at, at a moment's notice and there's a kind of a general understanding amongst, I think, humans now in 2020 that every person pretty much has their phone on them 100% of the time. So you have an obligation to answer. And if you don't answer, that person's going to know that you're not answering intentionally because they know you have your phone on them. And it's just a cycle of anxiety Mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. Do you think that there's any way to overcome that as a society? Or do you think we just kind of have to learn to, because to a certain extent for me, I kind of feel like those feelings are inevitable, you know, given the situation. And I think maybe just being able to, again, acknowledge those thoughts rather than, you know, maybe eliminate them if that's at all possible. There's kind of two parts to that. So when you're sitting at home on your day off and you 
get a text from the hotel or you get an email from the hotel, what happens? Um, What's the immediate thought? What's the immediate feeling? Wow. Um, let me, let me think here for a second. Uh, somebody called off. Do I have to come in? You know, you, maybe your heart starts racing a little bit. What's going on is the, you know, is the system down? Does somebody need something? Did somebody get hurt? I mean, again, an infinite, like just a flood of thoughts comes into your head and Mm -hmm. it could be anything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, anxiety for sure. Okay. So let's break it down. You get a text or you get a phone call. And the first thing is your body sensation, right? You feel it in your heart, right? Even before you have the thought. So you have that feeling in your heart and is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Um, generally unpleasant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking about m- the four foundations of mindfulness. So one, the body sensation, that feeling in your heart, like, uh, and then there's every experience, we have three reactions. It's unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. Those are, those are the feeling tones. And then, so it's unpleasant, your heart is racing, and what's the thought even before you read the text or the message? Somebody called off. Somebody. Oh, sure. Crazy. Yeah. Like the, just, a, you know, the, the, the guesses, the anxiety, the worst case scenarios are always mm-hmm. before you even, you know, look at the message, the worst case scenarios instantly come flooding into your mind. Mm-hmm. And then what happens when you read the text or the message? Uh, you either get confirmation that your worst fear is correct or you, maybe you're just kind of annoyed then that like, why would somebody, like, if it's not a worst case scenario, why the hell are you contacting me on my day off for something that can wait until I come back in? (laughs) Okay. So for those, why the hell are you contacting me? (laughs) Do you ever find yourself going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I reacted that way and thought a billion things when it wasn't any big deal. Yes. All the time. Mm-hmm. Cause then I'm like, okay. Cause I'm like, what's, what's, what's wrong with you, Kyle? Like, why are you, why are you thinking that way? Um, but then again, I <laughs> feel know, like it's happened so many times where it has been the worst case scenario that it's kind of just in, ingrained now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a pattern that you've established and One of the things before we address, like, will this ever change? Let's just talk about you, Kyle. If we practice mindfulness and we learn to extend time in the present, we get more in touch with what's going on with our bodies, right? So that text comes in or that email comes in. And the minute you feel your heart racing and you notice that, that's a moment of mindfulness where you can actually take a breath and just be like, okay, so I'm going to check this out and see what's going on. Or if you don't catch it there and you feel that anxiety, like, oh, crap, what's this now? And and it's unpleasant and you sense that it's unpleasant, that's a choice point again to practice mindfulness. So when we're slowing down and we're extending time in the present, you get that heartbeat, you know it's unpleasant. That's another choice point to not go to the thoughts, right? So then here we are, we're extending time in the present and we notice ourselves having the crazy thoughts. Somebody called in sick, something bad's happened, blah, blah, blah. When we notice that we're having those thoughts, there's another choice 
for mindfulness, okay, let me see what this is. So we've already mitigated some of our own suffering by noticing our own reaction and being able to come back to the present without going through this whole reactivity thing where we're like, oh, crap, I, I can't believe I let this do that to me again when it was no big deal, right? Yeah. It's normal and it's just the self-awareness, practicing self-awareness with those four steps of mindfulness can help us so we suffer less as individuals. Then the other thing is, if there is any possibility of putting some boundaries around how and when people can reach out to you, if it's not a big deal, then setting a boundary that if this can wait, I will check in with you at this time on my day off just to make sure everything is going okay, right? Yep. So this is exactly what I do when I come in to work with hotel teams. We talk about some different areas where we can co-create mindfulness practices as a team to help everybody show up better together. And, you know, certainly, certainly I don't lead any of these types of conversations. It's whatever's going on with that particular team. Where are there areas where we can practice? And it's not perfect. It's not about perfection. It's how can we show up better together and we come up and co-create these different ways and begin slowly implementing them. And it takes sort of a getting used to, to process, to get used to new ways of being. Oh my gosh, Kyle. Thank you. I think we all have an intention. We all, we have an intention every day to treat others well but we get distracted. We, the biggest interrupter of our good intentions is distraction. I would first of all say thank you for being part of this wonderful industry. And the other thing I would say is that we all have a responsibility for the way we show up for one another. And that obviously transcends just the guests that we're serving but having that hospitality also be focused internally is the most important factor for each individual's well-being. And that will spill out into the way that we practice hospitality to our guests. And that will spill out into our home lives and in our friendship and in our relationships. So we're all interconnected. Thanks, Kyle. I'm very active on LinkedIn, first of all. And then second of all, my website is ROI. It's real-time observations and insights, not return on investment. It's just a play on words, ROIMindfulness.com. Thank you so much. 